0: All right. So here we go. Every week, what we're going to do is basically two parts. We're going to do the what, um, what's going on, what's going on in the 1500s and you know, what, what was taking place. We're going to look at a lot of different characters. We're going to track somewhat with what uh, Ted's going to be doing in the pulpit ministry. He's going to be doing the reformation as well, but he's, he's going to deal with the five solas. Um, We're going to touch on those scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, but we're going to be dealing with more of theological topics as they have to do with things like, you know, justification and the church, um, the scriptures, and so we're coming at it a little bit different. They'll track well together, so it'll help you in your small group times, but I'm going to kind of hit it every week with the what and then follow up with the so what. What do we do with all this? Why does it even matter? And so this morning, what I want to do is kind of jump into why the Reformation, why in the world would I want to study the Reformation with you guys? Um, As I said, I thought I knew a lot about the Reformation. If I had to put down on a piece of paper everything I knew about the Reformation, this is it up here on the screen. This is basically all I knew. Um, I wasn't raised studying about the Reformation. I grew up Southern Baptist. We never talked about the Reformation. I didn't know Martin Luther existed until I got into college. And so, but I did know, I'd heard about the 95 Theses. I'd heard about things like the Inquisition. I think I got that from Monty Python. Um, <laughs> I knew there were Protestants because I was one. I knew there were Catholics because I grew up in New York and that's all I knew were Catholics. And so I knew about these things, but I knew nothing about the Reformation. And, and really, I grew up in ignorance. I didn't really understand why we're here. You know, I knew being raised a Southern Baptist, I knew there were other denominations. We were taught to hate them. Um, They were heretics. They were all lost. They weren't going to heaven because they danced and they drank and we didn't. Um, But I didn't understand what they believed. I didn't understand how they came about, why they existed. And it's all because of what happened in the 1500s. And so this happens to be, this year is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. 1517 to 2017. And so October is when we celebrate the Reformation typically. Now, most of us don't. We don't treat it like Easter, but there are some households that do celebrate the Reformation. Um, And it's in October of 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, okay? And we'll talk more about that as we move along. It's it's by far one of the most significant events that ever happened in human history. Um, you may not know that. You may not agree with that. But hopefully as we go through this, you'll see that it, it was incredibly significant. And it, we know it today as somewhat of a, as a revolution. It revolutionized everything. It revolutionized religious life, social life, political life in a major way like nothing had ever done before. As a matter of fact, I was thinking this morning driving in. It's really the second reformation, because the first reformation was when Jesus Christ came, because He reformed everything. And if you and we're going to be looking at, at this as we move along through the study, <laughs> that Jesus Christ came and He reformed everything in the religious arena in His day, the way the Pharisees approached the scriptures, the way the Sadducees looked at the scriptures, and He. We just finished a study last semester about. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, and you know that section in there where he says, "You have heard it said," and he would talk about their misconceptions of the law, and then he would say, "But I tell you," well, that's he was reforming everything that they knew, everything they knew about God, everything they knew about salvation. So that really was the first reformation. This is the second one. The sad thing is, is that we needed a second one because after Jesus Christ came. Why did it get to a point that we needed to have all these things reformed again? It didn't start out as a revolution. It was a reformation, and we'll see why in just a second. But I've called this, or I've referred to this as a war. Why is it a war? Why is it a 500 years war? Because we're 500 years after the fact, and I think we're still in a battle. Okay, We're still at war. And and the battle has to do with this one thing. And this is the underlying theme of this whole series as we go through it. It's a battle for the gospel. That's what this is all about. It's the gospel. This is not going to be a diatribe against the Catholic Church. Okay? If you grew up Catholic and, and you're going to hear me say things about the Catholic Church because you can't study the Reformation and not deal with the Catholic Church. Okay? That's a big part of why the Reformation happened. I am not going to... Bad mouth the Catholic Church. I'm not going to demean the Catholic Church, but we can't look at the Reformation without talking about what they taught, what they believed, and what they still believe today. It's really about the gospel, okay? So that's really where we're going. I love this quote from R.C. Sproul. It's one of the books I've recommended. It's called Are We Together. He says, Many issues were involved in the Reformation, but the core matter, the material issue of the Reformation was the gospel especially the doctrine of justification. How are we made right with God? How do we get to heaven, okay? That's the main thing that's gonna come out of the Reformation as we study it. Now, just by way of a little bit of history, this is a map of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, you've heard of the Holy Roman Empire. If you're like me, you probably had no clue what the Holy Roman Empire was. This is the area, this kind of the area in the, the pink, And a brief history of how we get to where we are in the 1500s is this. In 476 AD, the Roman Empire fell, the official Roman Empire, the same empire that was ruling in Jerusalem when Jesus came. It left behind all these different groups, these different city-states and different regions that were all kind of disparate and disconnected, and they all had their own um, kings and rulers But there was nobody in control anymore because the Romans had disappeared. They were the controlling factor. They held everything together. And so what you had happening at the same time is you had the Ottoman Turks coming up and they were moving north. And so the Muslims even then were moving into this area and it was affecting these nation states and some were even falling to the Ottoman Turks. So in 771 A.D., Charlemagne becomes king of the Franks. He becomes king over some of these areas, okay, and he kind of unifies them. But he really has no power. He really has no say because you have all these kind of fiefdoms that lots of little rulers ruling lots of little areas, and nobody's really in control. There was a leadership vacuum, basically. So in 800 A.D., Pope Leo III, he crowns Charlemagne and makes him the the Roman Empire, the emperor over the Roman Empire. And he crowns this guy the Holy Roman Emperor. Now this is important because one of the things that's gonna run through this series as we talk about the Catholic Church in particular, and we talk about politics as it relates to this, this area of the world, is that there was this ongoing debate about who's in charge. Is it the emperor? or is it the Pope? Well, the Pope crowns the emperor, so he must be in charge. But there's gonna be this constant infighting about who's really in charge of things. And during this period of time, because there was so much lack of control, you're gonna see that the Catholic Church rises to the occasion and steps in to fill a void. This is from um, the book, A Background of the Reformation. It's actually on a, a website. But it says this, the Christian church took over the administrative apparatus of the Roman Empire. Remember, the empire had fallen, and there's nobody really administering anything. So the church steps in. So that whereas previously you had a Roman governor in a province, the Christian church put a Christian bishop also in a province or a diocese. As a matter of fact, the word diocese is the territory over which the bishop ruled, and it's actually taken from Roman civic government. So the church goes in and says, hey, we we need some leadership here, and they start putting these bishops in. Now, that's going to lead to another problem because men started buying what are called bishoprics, okay? They bought the right to be a bishop because with the bishopric came money, okay? So you had lots of people going, hmm, I want to be a bishop, and they would buy a bishopric, and they would buy it from the pope, and the pope would sell it to them for a price, and then they could charge taxes to the people living in their area and they made money. And so you ended up with men who weren't even priests being bishops. So that just kind of starts the phase. Again, here's another quote. The kingdoms of Europe were dominated by monarchs, most ruling kingdoms composed of feudal fiefdoms and some stronger than others, but all facing severe problems of administrative control. In its medieval manifestation, the government was not the unifying force it's touted to be in contemporary societies. A far more unifying institution of medieval society was the Roman Catholic Church. So again, you have all these different fiefdoms, all these different regions with little kings. Nobody's really in control. There's a lot of infighting. And the Roman church steps in and says, well, we'll, we'll provide the control. And, and you have what was then called Christendom. And, and it was really where everybody's Christian. Now, it doesn't mean everybody's accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. It just means you're a Christian. We have a couple that's come to stay in our home who are Muslim. And when they first came into our home, they... they I was talking to them about their faith and our faith, and uh, they said, well, everybody in America is a Christian. I said, no, 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 they're not. They said, well, you're a Christian nation. I said, well, no, no, we're not. And see, in their mindset, everybody living in Saudi Arabia, where they live, is Muslim because they're born Muslim. So everybody here is born Christian. Well, that's kind of the context that we're dealing with in the 1500s is that everybody is born Christian. You're baptized as an infant Christian. And so it's called Christendom. Now, did these people follow Christ? Did these people know Christ? Had they accepted Christ? No, but they were Christian. And so the church had tremendous influence. The medieval church was a complex and far reaching institution. It's preeminence in Western European society and it's transnational scope. In other words, it went through all these different regions and everybody was Christian. It impacted everybody. By 1100, gave it monopolistic power beyond the reach of any single country or monarch. So you see what's happening. By 1100, the church is getting stronger and stronger, the Roman Catholic Church with the Pope, and it's beginning to infiltrate all these different areas of the Holy Roman Empire, and it had a monopoly. Now, see, in our society today, we as Christians don't have a a monopoly, right? We, We don't control anything. Uh, We we may control our own church, we may control our own denomination, but we certainly don't control this society. The church does not have a monopoly. Back then it did. There really was no competing religion with Christendom except the Muslims. And it was a military issue. You didn't have a whole lot of people converting to Islam other than the fact they did it if they were pressed into it when the Muslims took over their land just to stay alive, but it was really the church in control of everything. They controlled the marketplace, they controlled politics, and they influenced every area of life to, the, to this degree. These are some of the things they controlled in your life. If you live during the 1500s, during the medieval ages, this is what they controlled. They controlled your marriage. You couldn't get married without the church. You couldn't get an inheritance without the blessing of the church. You couldn't get an education because all the education was provided by the church. All the universities were church-oriented universities. There were no secular universities. There was no UT. Okay? Yeah, hook them. They're, they're, they didn't exist. There were monasteries. There were convents. There were all kinds of institutions. Everything was controlled by the church. You had to be baptized as an infant by the church. All the orphanages, everything was controlled by the church. So you can see that the church had tremendous influence. And I love this quote from Hans Hildebrand. He says, Rarely has any society since been so strongly, so completely, and so comprehensively permeated by what? By the church as that of the late Middle Ages. Indeed, the label used to describe this all-embracing political, social, and religious phenomenon was Christendom. And you've heard that phrase before. You've seen movies. And it just simply meant that everybody was under the control of the church. The church had power. The church wanted power. And I think initially it started out right in the sense that we want to impact all of life. And the church should. But it soon became distorted and warped and a little bit too much just a love of power. So you see that by 1100, the papacy, just the Pope, the power of the Pope, he owned more than one-third of the arable land in all of Western Europe. That means any land that was valuable, any land that could be planted, any land that was worth anything, he owned. The Pope owned. Now, was that necessary for the church to spread? No, I don't think so. But there was this desire for power and possession. So by 1300, the church claims a God-given universal monarchy as the vicar or the substitute of Christ on the earth. This is where it starts getting squirrely. This is where the church starts to really claim that it has power that it really biblically doesn't have. And the reason, part of the reason the church was doing this is because it's trying to tell the monarchy, the king, the emperor, that we are the ones that are in control because we've been given control by God. We we are the substitutes of Christ on the earth. And that's where you start to get some of the papal power coming in and infallibility That whatever the the pope says, ex cathedra, from the seat in the basilica, his throne is comparable to the word of God. Okay? So you start to see all of this stuff happening. And in the midst of it comes this guy, Martin Luther. Okay? We're going to be talking about Martin Martin Luther a lot. I'm not going to deify Martin Luther I'm going to show his warts. Um, Martin Luther was a wonderful man, a great man, but he had flaws just like you and I. But he was born in 1483, and then he planned to go into law. And we'll talk more about his conversion experience later on. But he ends up becoming a monk, an Augustinian monk, which is a very strict order of monks. And so he becomes this monk, and he goes to Rome on a mission for the church in 1510. Some things happened there, and we'll find out more about that. He later became a professor of theology, ends up in Wittenberg at the university there. And then in 1514, he began to lecture on the book of Romans, which will have a significant impact on his salvation experience and also will lead to the Reformation. And then in 1517, he posts his 95 theses, okay, nails them to the church door. And then in 1521, he's declared a heretic. Now, I'll do the math for you. He's 28. That's an auspicious life by 28, to be declared a heretic by the time you're 28 by the Roman Catholic Church, which meant you needed to die. Now, sometimes we don't understand heresy and why were they so adamant about heresy, and the only way I can help you understand their hatred of heresy, false teaching, was it impacted life, all of life. So it'd be the equivalent of back during the Cold War, if, if the Americans, remember the Rosenbergs who got caught for spying and they were put to death for spying and passing secrets to the Russians? There probably was an American alive at that time who went, gosh, I can't believe we're going to kill these people. Every American wanted them killed because they threatened the well-being of this society. Well, that's the same thing as heresy in the day of the church and during Christendom. If, if you were a heretic and you were preaching false doctrine, you, are, you were upsetting the apple cart in a big way and impacting all of society. And so in their minds, you just kill them. You burn them, you drown them, you get rid of them. So at 28 years old, this young guy, this priest, this monk is declared a heretic. And, and again, we'll find more about Martin Luther as we move along. But this is the church in Wittenberg. It still stands. It's the same place where he na- nailed those 95 theses. So on October 31st is when he did it. And here's the interesting thing about it. He, he writes them in Latin because that was the l- language of the academics, the priests. So he writes these 95 theses in Latin. And he nails them to the door. And some of his students get copies of them. And they translate them into German and the printing press had come into being, and they get them printed and they distribute them all over the place. And overnight, this guy becomes infamous and famous. Suddenly, Martin Luther, who's just obscure monk, becomes a household name, and really not in a good way. And and we'll find out that it, these 95 theses were not meant to start a revolution. They were just they were like uh, posting something on an academic board on the computer. Hey, here's some things I'd like to talk about. He meant to talk about them with other professors, other priests, and yet it ends up getting out into the society and it got the news or the, the uh, interest of the Pope, as you can imagine, because of some of the things he wrote in his 95 Theses. He covered a range of topics, okay? And I've given you in your... Uh, Notebook, a copy of the 95 Theses. I'd encourage you to read it at some point. You don't need to do it right now. But here's some of the things he covered the sale of indulgences. Now, we think of indulgences as this thing that happened way, way, way back in the past. The Catholic Church still teaches indulgences. Okay? So it's not all ancient history. He wanted to talk about that. He talked about penance, the idea of absolution, getting your sins forgiven by a priest. He wanted to, had some issues with that. He had issues with the Pope's assertion that he could forgive all sin, anybody, for all time. He had that power. And Martin Luther had a little bit of a problem with that. Why? Because he was studying the Scriptures, teaching the Scriptures. He had problems with the doctrine of purgatory. Not so much that purgatory existed as a doctrine, but that the Pope had the power he claimed to have the power to forgive anybody in purgatory waiting to get to heaven. The Pope had the power to forgive all of their sins. And Martin Luther wanted to know, why don't you? What, are you? what are you holding out on? Why are you charging money to do it? Just do it. So he didn't really have a problem with purgatory. Initially, he had a problem with the Pope wanting money to forgive sins. And we'll, again, get into that. He had a real problem with the church's obsession with money and power and stuff. And then he had a little bit of problem with the Pope's claim to authority, all authority, that his authority was greater than that of scripture. And then he's going to talk about the gospel. And that's really, again, the underlying thing here. As a matter of fact, in his number 62, his theses, he says, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory of grace of God. It's not stuff, it's not buildings, it's not crowns, it's not tiaras, it's not robes, it's not land. It's the gospel, and we got to get back to the gospel. So the 95 Theses was a major kind of watershed moment in this idea of the Reformation. What's this big beef with the church? Why is he upset with the church? Now, he's a monk. He's an Augustinian monk. What's, what's he upset about? Well, first of all, he's not out to replace the church. He's not trying to get rid of the Catholic church. He was a faithful Catholic. He was a faithful monk. He's trying to reform it. He just simply looked at the church and he went, I see some flaws. Here's the scriptures. Here's the church. I don't see some of these things gelling. And so I want to step into this and I want to I talk about it. That's really all he started out to do is just to talk. And the reason was because by the 16th century, the mid, early to mid-16th century, the church was in a really sad state. Now, you can go read Catholic historians, and they will agree, okay? This is not Protestants slamming Catholics. This was a dark time in the life of the Catholic church. The church had become corrupt from the top down. The popes had become corrupt. The bishops had become corrupt. The priests had become corrupt. And they had overlaid the gospel with tradition and with superstition, things that were not in the scripture. Now, one of the things we have to realize is that, that the Catholic church um, have the same Bible, but they also have the Apocrypha, which we do not adhere to. We don't believe the Apocrypha is the word of God. They do. And some of their doctrine came out of the Apocrypha, Okay. You can get a Catholic Bible and all the books of the Apocrypha will be in there, and they are considered Scripture, they are considered on the par with all the rest of Scripture. We don't believe that. And from that come what we believe as Protestants, superstitions, things that don't really gel. matter of fact, John Fox, who wrote the Fox's Book of Martyrs back in 1563, so not long after this, he says, we had too many churches, too many relics, true and fake, and we'll talk a lot about relics too many untruthful miracles. Instead of worshiping the only living God, we worship dead bones. In the place of mortal Christ, we worship mortal bread, the consecrated bread of the mass. So all of this stuff had come in, the Eucharist, um, the bones and the relics of saints. They would go to the Holy Land and they would find a place that they thought to be where Mary lived. And they would just, you know, take the place down and then they would take all the the beams and the wood and they would divide it up and they would send it to churches and those would become relics and then people would go on pilgrimages to those places, pay money to go see these relics and the church was making money off it. Having relics was a huge deal but as John Fox says, it was all superstition. It wasn't really, you could could go and see, this, this is what blows me away, you could go see breast milk from Mary now, how in the world they got breast milk from Mary? I have no idea. You, you could go get the robe that Jesus was wrapped in when he was ridiculed by the Romans. You, you could get pieces of the cross. You could get, and there were so many pieces of the cross. You know, they calculated that if you put them all together, you'd have had hundreds of crosses. They, they were fake. They weren't real. But yet, people worshipped them, and people paid money to see them. And I love, again, Hans Hildebrand, this is a great book, The Protestant Reformation. He says, ignorant of most doctrines, the common people undoubtedly tended to reduce Catholic faith to its lowest common denominator, a simple religion of rewards and punishments. That's really all Catholicism had become at this point in time. It was rewards or punishment. That's all you had. You're either going to heaven or you're not going to heaven. You're going to hell, you're going to purgatory, but it was all based on what you did with your life. Very little understanding of the gospel what the New Testament taught. Now, here's here's what's fascinating to me, okay? Here's what's going on. The church had a lot of problems. Here's one of them. Uh, Martin Luther called it the Babylonian captivity, okay? This was a period of years. It it was roughly about 70 years, which is where he got the term. From 1305 to 1377, you had six successive popes who ruled in France, Avignon, France, Now, why is that a big deal? Well, where had popes traditionally ruled? Rome. And somehow they had stolen the papacy from Rome and moved it to Avignon, France. So for six successive popes, there was no more popes in in Rome. The Holy City, where the Basilica was, they were all in France and this was a huge issue. And so it led to what's called the papal schism. So in 1377, the papacy gets moved back to Rome with an Italian pope. So everything's back to normal. We're back in Rome. We got, got ourselves an Italian pope. This is the way it should be. This is the way God intended it. But the problem is the pope in France decided, I'm not going to resign. Well, what problems does that cost? Now you got two popes. Why is that a problem? Which one is authoritative? Which one speaks for God? you got two of them. Both of them claim to be the pope. Well, it gets worse. A council of cardinals decides we've got to fix this problem, so they elect a new pope. All right, what do you do? The two deposed popes, one in France and one in Italy, say, we're not going to resign. Now you have three popes, all three claiming to speak for God, all claiming to have authority over the scriptures. Which one? One. See, this was a huge problem, and it went on for 36 years. The the church, Christendom, was ruled by three different popes, all claiming authority. That's a problem. Luther saw it as a problem. There's something wrong with the church. And and one of the things going on as well was this issue of simony, and I kind of touched on it earlier. The church would sell positions. Bishoprics is what they were called. And so, if if I wanted to buy a bishopric and I was just some businessman, I could buy a bishopric. I would pay a price for it. And I didn't have to be a priest. I also didn't have to live in the region where my bishopric lied. And I could own multiple bishoprics and never visit any of those places. So, you had bishops who didn't live where they were supposed to live, didn't minister to the people they were supposed to minister to. And they weren't even priests. They weren't even necessarily godly men. They did this because they made money off of it because they charged taxes to the people living in those areas. And the Pope would sell these things because the church made money off of these men buying these bishoprics. So it was a money deal. So lots of greed, lots of things going on. The other issue going on during this time is purgatory. You've all heard of purgatory. What is purgatory? Well, purgatory was a doctrine they believed, and it's not in the Bible. Uh, Some believe that it comes out of the Apocrypha. It's it's a fairly late doctrine that came into the Roman Catholic Church, and it was based on the fact, because of the way they believe about salvation, is that you have to do good works to get into heaven. Well, nobody can do enough good works in this lifetime to get into heaven, so there's got to be a holding place. Where you go, you don't go straight to hell, but you go to purgatory. And in purgatory, you continue to do good works. And so by the end of purgatory, hopefully you've done enough good works to get into heaven. Because it's all about doing good works. Purgatory was a temporary holding place for all who failed to do enough good in this life to earn salvation in a place in heaven. So purgatory was a very, very strong element in medieval life. You were sent to purgatory to purge your sins and to earn additional merits. So you see this little illustration. This was their illustration of the purgatorial spiral, that you were always working your way to the top. And you had to get to the top. So if you got to the top, then you could go into heaven. And so this is where indulgences come in. This is where prayer for the dead came in. All of this stuff had a role in medieval life. And unlike heaven and hell, purgatory was a place with a time limit. Its swan song, when it would finally be emptied of the triumphantly cleansed, was to come at the last judgment. But meanwhile, it might also encompass individual time limits appropriate to those who had various quantities of sin to purge. So if I live my life, I die, I go to purgatory, I still got some work to do. I'm not good enough to get into heaven. And the good thing for me, died, I've died and gone to purgatory. My kinfolk, who are still alive can do good deeds for me to buy me time out of purgatory. They could buy indulgences. They could go on a pilgrimage. They could go look at the relics. And every time they did one of these righteous works, these works of satisfaction, it could buy me time out of purgatory. So all of this is circulating. You can see why this was so um, important to Luther. Luther. And I know I'm hitting you with a lot of quotes this morning, but I think they say it better than I could say it. And all of these are in your notes. But listen to this. According to Catholic theology, every sin you commit results in both eternal and temporal penalties. Eternal penalties afflict your relationship with God. They are spiritual and deal with your status in eternity. That is whether you go to heaven or hell. But since a sin against God is also a crime against your neighbor, sins must also be punished in this life. Hence the temporal penalties, which are paid in time. This is where purgatory comes in. When you confess your sins to a priest and he absolves you, that absolution takes away the eternal penalty due to your sins, but leaves the temporal untouched. He then assigns you a penance, a good work, that you can perform that pays the temporal penalty. If you die with your temporal debt unpaid, the remainder has to be paid in time in the afterlife, so you go to purgatory, a doctrine developed in the 12th century to deal with the problems associated with unpaid temporal penalties." After your temporal penalty is completely paid in purgatory, then you get to go to heaven. So when did did purgatory come into existence? The 12th century. It wasn't an original doctrine of the church. It was a manufactured doctrine to help people who were dying. Because remember, what's going on during the medieval age? The plague. People are dying in droves by the thousands. And these people are dying, and they haven't done enough good works. And so they came up with the idea of purgatory because so many people were dying who were obviously gonna to go to hell because they hadn't done enough good works. Well, they need a second chance. It's like a mulligan. You're gonna to go to purgatory. You got plenty of time. It may take you 10,000 years, 10 million years. It doesn't matter, because eventually you're gonna get there because you'll have enough time to make this work out. Plus you'll get help from home. So how does this all fit together? Here's, here's, here's a little glimpse into how all of these pieces fit together and affected the church. We've all heard of St. Peter's Basilica. Many of you probably visited it in Rome. Uh, Well, it had to get built, and Pope Leo X wanted to finish the basilica. It was going to be the crowning achievement of his papacy, but he needed money to do it. Okay, so what does he do? He turns to Albert of Brandenburg. Now, Albert of Brandenburg was not a priest. He wasn't a bishop. He wanted to be a bishop, and so he wanted to buy the bishopric of man's. Why? So he could make money. So what does he do? I want to buy a bishopric. Pope Leo wants to build the basilica. So he goes to a German bank called the Fugers Bank, and he borrows the money to buy the bishopric. The money is forwarded to Pope Leo so he can build the basilica. And then what does Albert do? Albert then subcontracts to the Dominicans to sell indulgences. And I say subcontract because they made money off of selling indulgences. And then they would sell the indulgences to who? The common people. And this is where Tetzel comes in and the the whole sale of indulgences. And they would sell indulgences to the people to get either themselves out of purgatory eventually or their dead loved ones out of purgatory. The money then would go back to the Dominicans. They would keep a portion. The rest would go to Albert to pay off his loan to the Fugars who would lend the money to Pope Leo. You see how this all works? It's a sick process, okay? You don't have to be Protestant to see that there's something wrong with this picture. And it was all about money. It was all about making money. And it bugged Luther to no end. Just as a monk, he looked at it and went, there's something wrong with this. It doesn't gel with Scripture. And if you go to 1995, the updated Catechism of the Catholic Church defines an indulgence as a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. An an indulgence is partial or plenary according to as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment. The only reason I'm quoting that, this is the 1995 catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. They still believe in indulgences. They still promote indulgences. Matter of fact, 2017 July, Vatican, get time off in purgatory by following the Pope on Twitter. They've updated. As a matter of fact, they had a World Youth Council uh, this last year. And if you couldn't attend... If you attended the World Youth Council, you got indulgence points. You, 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 if you physically... It's like going on a, a, a trip. And you, uh, you went to wherever this thing was. I don't even know where it was. But if you went, you got indulgence and merit. And you got time off in purgatory. If you couldn't go... The Pope and and his his cronies came up with that. Well, if you can't go, just watch it on YouTube and it will count just as much. They're using technology. But it's still selling indulgences, basically. And along with indulgences came the treasury of merits. It still exists. The treasury of merits was... The superabundant satisfaction of Christ for human sins and the excess merit of the saints, which according to Roman Catholic theology is effective for salvation of others and is available for dispensation through indulgences. What does that mean? Jesus Christ obviously lived a perfect life and he had more merit than he needed because he was sinless. So what, did, what happened to all the good things that he did in life? It went into the treasury of merit. How about all the saints? How about Mary? All these saints who got into heaven... Because of their saintliness, they had excess merit that didn't get used, so it went into the treasury of merit. And you could buy merit from this treasury. I could buy excess merit from Mary. She didn't need it, they believed she was bodily sent back up into heaven, she didn't die. So she had all this excess merit. Jesus had excess merit. The saints had excess merit. And I could buy it with an indulgence, and it would get me out of purgatory or my loved one who had already died. And it was totally administered by the pope. It was a collection of excess merits. And this is why the vast majority of the 95 Theses is about the the indulgences and about this whole issue that the pope had control over these merits and, and Poor Martin sitting there going, and this guy struggled with his his faith. He struggled with salvation. He struggled with, I'm a sinner and I'll never be good enough to get into heaven. And you've got all this extra merit. Give it to me. If you control it, just give it out. Why are you making people pay for it? And the vast majority of the people who are doing the paying are the poor. And that was his problem. That was his struggle. The only way you could get access was by buying an indulgence. So in Theses 32, he says, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. You can tell Martin had a problem with this. Just because you bought a a letter that says you've been let off, you'll be damned. It's not going to buy you anything. It's not worth the ink it's written with. It's vain to trust in salvation by indulgence letters, even though the indulgence commissary or even the Pope were to offer his soul as security. Don't buy it. Now, you can also see why this got him into trouble with the Pope, right? And Albert, because Albert's sitting there going, wait, 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 wait. I'm making money to pay off my debt, and you're bad-mouthing indulgences, and you're trying to rile up the common people, and that's how I make my money. You can also see why the Dominicans didn't like what he had to say. And so this issue of indulgences got Luther into a whole lot of trouble. So what? Okay, what do we do with all this? Why does it matter to you? Why does it matter to me? I love this quote from George Santayana. He says, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. He's actually the one that said this. See, I think there's a lot for us to learn here because we live in a day and age when there is a lot of falsehood being taught as Christianity that's taught as scripture and it's not. And the only reason Martin Luther, Calvin, and others were able to see the falsehood is because they spent so much time in this book. And I want you to spend time in this book. I want you to know the truth so that you can spot falsehood or you'll live to repeat these same mistakes. I love this from 1 Corinthians. Paul told the Corinthians, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. See, we can sit there and go, well, we're 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 500 years past the Reformation. This stuff doesn't exist anymore. Yes, it does. And what you're going to see is that the vast majority of the issues that Martin Luther had with the Catholic Church are still resonant in the Catholic Church. And again, I'm not here to badmouth Catholics. I'm just telling you their doctrine has not changed. Now, their methodology has changed but their doctrine has not and i'm not saying that they're not christians in the catholic church i believe there are many but most of the time it's in spite of the doctrines of their church that many of them don't even know about what they teach about salvation justification so the gospel in my mind in 5 500 years ago was under siege it's still under siege it was under attack then, it's under attack now. It was watered down, it was diluted. It's the same thing today. And we gotta be aware of it. And wealth and power had replaced spiritual relevance. Man, this is so true of the church today, guys. When you see, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a wealthy, affluent church. And guys, tomorrow we could stop teaching the gospel and we could still succeed. There's churches all around this country you can go to Joel Olstein's church, and, and it's packed. And that guy's making all kinds of money, but he's not teaching the gospel. He's teaching a watered-down version of the gospel, prosperity gospel. So this idea that we're not under attack is just silly. It's still a war. It's still a battle. And the gospel had taken a backseat to, to power, prominence, and we got to get back to the purity of the gospel we can't take away from it we can't add to it we can't repackage it we can't try to make it more palatable to people we got to teach it the way the bible teaches it and preaches it we got to keep it pure so it's all about redemption that's what luther's wingley melanchthon all of these guys taught it's about salvation it's about redemption and we've got to keep that the first thing the message of salvation justification and sanctification What did the Catholic Church teach? What did the Protestants try to bring into the equation? And really all the Protestants, for all their faults, for all their flaws, and they had many of them, was just trying to go back to what did the New Testament teach about salvation? What did Jesus teach about salvation? And it reminds me of Paul in Galatians. When he told the Galatian believers, he says, even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be condemned to hell. Those are strong words. Why? Because he felt strongly about it. As we've said before, and I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, let him be condemned to hell. If anybody preaches a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different way of salvation, he should be condemned to hell. That's how strongly Paul felt about it. And Ulrich Zwingli said, those who say that the gospel is nothing without the confirmation of the church err and blaspheme God. In other words, if you have to have the church to get saved, if you have to have the Pope to sell you merits, if you have to have indulgences given to you by the Pope, then you err and you are blaspheming God because that's not the gospel. There is no purgatory. There is no holding tank. And so I want to wrap up with this. Think about these statements, guys, because they're very important. It's not enough to say Jesus is the son of God. Because everybody in Christendom, 15, 17, 18, 19, 20, would have said, well, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. And there are people today who say Jesus is the Son of God. But think about this. Once when Jesus was in the synagogue, a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit began shouting at Jesus, go away, why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Why have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. Here's a demon Who knows Jesus is the Son of God, but he's not going to heaven. So just saying it with your mouth doesn't make it so. It's not enough to believe in God. James says that you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. At least the demons shudder. See, there are people today who say, well, yeah, I believe in God. I believe there's a deity. It's not the same thing. It's a different kind of gospel. It's not enough to claim belief in the gospel. Why? Because there are all kinds of gospels out there. That's why Paul told the Galatians, I'm astonished how quickly you're deserting the one who has called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, a different version of salvation, a different version of justification. That's what was happening in the 1500s and it's still happening today. And it's not enough to proclaim Jesus. Paul told the Corinthians, you happily put up with what anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach. What's a different Jesus? Jesus. A Jesus who was just a man. A Jesus who was just a good teacher. A Jesus who was morally righteous and good, but he wasn't the son of God. A Jesus who didn't die on the cross and therefore didn't resurrect. Those are versions of the gospel that are being preached today in churches all across this country. It's a different Jesus. And according to Catholic doctrine, they preach a different Jesus. He wasn't enough because you had to do more. It wasn't about justification in Christ alone. It was about justification in Christ plus your justification you earned by your merits, your good deeds, your good works. That's a different gospel, and it's dangerous. So here's what I want you to talk about this morning around your tables. In this first one, guys, I really need you to be honest, and I need you to be kind, because this could blow up in my face. Take a few minutes to go around the table and share your religious background. What denominations or denominations did you grow up in and how has it influenced you? I know there are guys in this room who grew up Roman Catholic. I know there are guys who grew up Church of Christ. I know there are guys who grew up, uh, you know, Church of God, the Baptists, the Methodists, Episcopalian. Share that because it's going to influence how you hear this. And what I don't want you to do is, you grew up Catholic? What is wrong with you? you know? You're Episcopalian? That's like Catholic. That's just like a diluted version of Catholic. No, I don't want you to fight about it. I want you to share it because it's going to be important to how you receive this information, how you process it. Secondly, discuss why you think the understanding of church history is important to us today. I think it's very important. And if you have time, have someone read Galatians 1, 8 through 9. Why do you think Paul had such strong words to say about the gospel? In what ways do we see a different gospel being preached today? I think this is going to be a fantastic study. I know I've hit you with a lot of history, a lot of information. But, guys, this sets the tone for where we're going next week, which is the the role of the Scripture in the life of the believer. And Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and all these guys put a high stock in the Scriptures. And so that's where we're going next week. Let me pray for you. Father, bless these guys as they talk around the tables. May they be open and honest, and may they be accepting of one another, and may, Father, may this just be the beginning of a relationship that they build with the guys around their table, that we could grow deeper in our relationships with one another, but more importantly, with our relationship with you, as we realize what we have received through Jesus Christ. And again, it doesn't come from men, doesn't come from a church, it comes from you, the gift of salvation, the gift of justification. And I thank you for that. So bless these men as they talk, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.